Many believe that the visions in John's Revelation, like Mystery Babylon, have to deal with the past, specifically up until and including the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. Today we're going to examine closely these claims and see what history and scripture really have to say about preterism. Welcome to the Dance of Life podcast, everybody. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host. Thanks so much for being with me today. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe on my website. That's danceoflife.com, where you can watch all of my content ad-free. And you'll also know when I produce content, unlike YouTube, because YouTube seems to be censoring some things here and there. So either way, thanks so much for being with me today. We are adding to this already enormous end time series, but of course, you know, some things just need to be elaborated on. And I recently checked my comments to see, to my surprise, how many people believe in preterism, which is something that I've talked about probably not as much as I should have in this series. In the first episode of this series uh, on the end times, I discussed the, the major end times views and what the problem is with each of them, because the position that I present in my series is not really it's not a defined position. It's a narrow road approach where we look at history and scripture and really see what they have to testify. Because every position has something that it gives you that it's somewhat true, except for dispensationalism. If you're a dispensationalist, you'll probably be annoyed at that. But the truth is that dispensationalism really has nothing to offer you. But most positions like premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, they have something. And ultimately, but they, they have other things that are very wrong. So it's not the water in a cup that kills you, it's the poison drop that's within. So today we are looking at preterism, because preterism is something that I haven't talked so much about, and I see actually from the comments and from just surveying the landscape of all the videos I've posted and people commenting on them, that a lot of people believe in preterist teachings. And they don't realize necessarily what the implications are, where do these beliefs come from, why the, why it's important to be aware that preterism is not the truth and where it comes from and all these types of things. So I'm like, you know, I really need to make a, a, a video on this and specifically the idea that Jerusalem is the city of seven hills. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Today will be very educating for you. It'll be a great history lesson. We'll do some great scripture work. We're going to look at a lot of really interesting things. But the idea is that Jerusalem is the city of seven hills spoken of by John when he identifies this woman sitting on a beast named Mystery Babylon. And one of the characteristics of this woman is that she sits on seven hills. And of course, there's many interpretations of this, and I have lots of episodes discussing Mystery Babylon, the woman who sits on in seven hills and why she is who she is. And hopefully today you will see that as well, because my goal with today is that you have beyond a shadow of a doubt proof and evidence as to who John was talking about. And he certainly wasn't talking about Jerusalem, so spoiler alert. But nonetheless, this is the preterist teaching, and some of the argumentation goes like this. And again, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, it's all going to be made clear. But some people say that, well, you know, in, in the Bible, it's actually mountains. It's supposed to be seven mountains, it's not seven hills. This is, you know, this is a satanic teaching. It's been hidden from the truth. It's only in the KJV. It says mountains. So you see, it's actually Jerusalem because Jerusalem has seven mountains around it, not just seven hills. They're actually like actual mountains. 
So it's hiding the identity of the true mystery Babylon. This is the argumentation. So we're going to look at all these things. We're going to look at what the preterists say in detail. We're going to look at what the argumentations are. We're going to look at scripture and we're going to look at history because we want to be clear. Now, a couple things to remind you about preterism. Preterism is the idea that everything is in the past and it has to do with the Jews. So the Jews are the center of Bible prophecy, of the end times prophecy, but it doesn't really concern us anyway because it's in the past. Everything's already happened. Now, some people are partial preterists. Some people are full preterists. Some people are even hyper preterists. I've talked about this in the in the first episode of the series. But today, most people who are post-millennial, meaning they see things getting better, they're usually Christian nationalists, Christian dominionists, NAR type of people, they're preterist in their understanding of the end times, meaning everything happened in the past, we don't have to worry about it, things are getting better. Of course, you can understand what the great danger with that is, because if the future is a false millennial reign, a false Christ, a false Christian nationalist system, which I've talked about, then these people are walking right into that head, that deception headlong. So you can see what the, you know, what the cost of this belief is. But nonetheless, some people are even hyper-preterist, where they believe that the second coming has already happened. And we're already in the new heavens and the new earth. And of course, there's many problems with that, not the least of which is where's where's our resurrected body, if that's the case. And so how to get around these things, preterists usually spiritualize everything. I've talked to some people who believe the second coming has already happened. I said, well, where's our resurrection body, if that's, if that's the case? The church has always believed in a renewed creation, a renewed body. Where is it at? I'm getting older every day, so are you. Look at around the world. The world's getting worse and worse. Oh, well, it's actually, it's a spiritual thing. And, you know, we're, we're, it's like, no, the gospel, yes, the gospel gives you the strength to endure the tribulations of life. Absolutely. But the promise of the gospel, the entire point of the gospel is to cancel the Genesis curse, is to bring everything full circle back to Eden before the fall. And of course, now there's context and there's a whole history. But nonetheless, the Bible starts with paradise and ends with paradise. And that's for a reason. That's by design. So anybody who's telling you the second coming of Christ has already happened or people who teach like the Tartaria thing where there's, if you don't know what that is, don't worry. But it's a whole, you know, rabbit worm of rabbit hole or wormhole. I want to say rabbit hole and wormhole. I said rabbit worm. Uh, but it's a rabbit worm. Yeah, it's a rabbit worm of just history that is misappropriated. Now, history is a mystery. I'll, I'll give you that. There are many things in history that they're very questionable as far as the mainstream narrative. That's for sure. But that doesn't mean that all of history has been covered up and that the second coming of Christ has already happened and it was some thousand year reign in the past. And now we're here basically just hanging out in a cursed world. Like that is not what the Bible teaches at all. But a lot of people believe this, unfortunately. And we have, we unpack these things in the first episode of the series. So if you are new to this idea, then go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning and watch this from the beginning. Because in the first episode, I talk about all the end times views and what their problems are, because they each have a major problem. And if you can come to the point where you look at that and you say, okay, I can see this. I can see that each basically end times view has a problem. If you can come to that, then you are on the right track. 
because the point is not to have a position, not to identify yourself as like, oh, I'm a this or I'm a that. How about you just take what history and scripture have to say without having to call yourself anything? That's really the point. But preterists believe that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is having to do with everything up until the destruction of the temple, the second temple in 70 AD. After 70 AD, doesn't really doesn't really concern us. All that stuff was leading up to them. That was the most significant point of the entire books of the Bible prophesying end times events and all these antichrist powers taking over the world. That was it. 70 AD. A small little place in the world where a temple was destroyed and relatively speaking, not that many people died. I say relatively speaking because millions upon millions upon millions upon tens of millions of Christians have been killed in the last 2,000 years after 70 AD. So relatively speaking, not very impactful. But nonetheless, in order to do this, Revelation, according to preterists, has to be written before 70 AD. You see, because if it was written after 70 AD, then it doesn't make any sense that John is having all these visions of something that happened already. Like, doesn't doesn't make any sense. Now, there are some preterists that believe that, okay, yeah, we acknowledge that the evidence, and we're going to look at this, but they acknowledge that the evidence is far more convincing for a later revelation writing date. Meaning, there are preterists who believe that, okay, yeah, revelation was probably written after 70 AD. And we're going to look at the evidence because it most likely was, very, very likely. But then they say, well, then the visions that John wrote about are really just like kind of reflecting on the past, which again, really doesn't make any sense. That John would be would belabor himself to do that. Nevertheless, how many times in the Bible was there a prophet who had a vision? It's a prophecy, it's a vision about the past. That doesn't make any sense. It's not consistent at all with the progression of Revelation. Prophecies and visions have always been about the future. And so this is something to acknowledge. So if we can look at the evidence and see when Revelation was written, this is going to be one of the many nails in the coffin for preterism today. So I hope you will stay with me to learn the truth. So let's unpack preterism. Let's address all these points in detail. There's a lot of things to talk about. There's a lot of interesting things to look into with history and the progression of these things, as well as the history of the church and the beliefs that people had. But why this matters is very important. And I hope that I've already impressed upon you the importance when I mentioned the whole idea of Christian nationalism, how the world is moving towards a Christian nationalist system. Again, if all this stuff sounds like crazy to you, then go back and watch my series, all the different episodes we have on, especially episode 10 and later, because the first 10 episodes I focus on the millennial kingdom. After that, we start to look and unpack the nature of these beasts in Daniel and Revelation, of Mystery Babylon, of current events and how all these things are being fulfilled and moving towards, like, where is it moving? What's the image of the beast? The counterfeit spirit, all these things are really, really important because most people are not talking about these things. But why this matters is because most people are deceived on end times events. And one of the ways that people are deceived is that everything has already happened. It doesn't concern us. Now, if you were the devil and you were planning to receive worldwide worship and deceive the world, which is what the Bible says, then 
imagine if people thought that, oh, we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> That's already, it didn't, it has to do with people in the past. It doesn't concern us. Do you see how that makes you ripe for the picking for a worldwide system where people are taking some sort of obedient mark to the devil? Now, I'm not talking about a physical mark. I'm just saying a mark of obedience. They're submitting themselves to this system, thinking it's a good thing. This is what's on the horizon. The great deception is not the big, bad, deep state. The great deception is people are going to think that we have made it. And sure, yeah, just sign the dotted line and here we are. If that's the deception, then thinking that Bible prophecy doesn't concern us is one of the best ways to fool people into that deception. Do you see what I'm saying? Why this is so important and why identifying what John was speaking of is so critical. And we're going to do a good job with that today, hopefully, and you'll see the truth. But if you're looking for the wrong things to interpret, you will not see the real Antichrist power on the earth. And as you go through this episode with me, you'll learn why preterism was created. It was actually created by the real Antichrist power to hide its identity along with futurism, where everything is pushed to the future. So God forbid you look in history in the present moment and see what God wants you to see, which is to use the Bible, no matter when you are in history, to use the Bible to see where you are in the plan of salvation, in the plan of the unfolding salvation of the world, really. But this is very important because John gives many characteristics and identifiers and markers in Revelation 17, which is the focus of our episode today, concerning Mystery Babylon, the City of Seven Hills, that kind of thing, so that you know who this power is. A lot of, I mean, really, you can't get it wrong, but apparently some people, a lot of people apparently, do get it wrong because they do not understand the impact of their beliefs and they don't read in context. We're going to read in context today. Historical context, cultural context, and scriptural context, a lot of important context. Another important thing to remember, and why this matters, is that John is connected to Daniel, the book of Daniel. I've talked about this lots and lots of times. Daniel and John are two peas in a pod. You cannot read John without reading Daniel in context. Now, why that's important is because there's a lot of details in Daniel that flesh out and underpin what John talks about like the time periods, 1260 days, which are really years. They're not actual days. And we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll look at, at the evidence for that. But if we look at the context of Daniel, we can see whether preterism is right or wrong about its suppositions. If we don't use Daniel, then it's easy to twist revelation into all sorts of theories, which people do already. They read things out of context all the time. So I hope you're not going to be one of those people. But the first topic is this. It's whether Revelation was written before or after 70 AD. So we're going to look at a couple articles, look at a couple pieces of evidence that are very important. Now, this first one is from a biblical hermeneutics discussion on, on a stack exchange. And these things I'll cite as usual. You can check them for yourself. But here's some very important arguments for a late AD 96, or approximately, writing date for Revelation. Early church writers like Irenaeus, in his Against Heresies, Victorinus of Petau, Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen, who all agree with John, 
that wrote he wrote the during the time of Domitian. Now Domitian was a Roman emperor who was after 70 AD. He was between 80 and like 90 something, I forget. We'll figure it out. Several of the churches addressed in the first three chapters had historical circumstances that do not match an early date for Revelation. Several of the churches addressed had lost their ardor for Christ, and heresies had infected others. Now, if you read, this is about the first chapters of Revelation where there's the letters to the various churches. So this is the context. Churches usually do not lose their ardor or find heresies in their first generation, which is true. So if if Revelation was written like in 60 AD, then, I mean, that's not a lot of time for churches to suddenly become apostate or lose their ardor, get some, you know, heresies, all these types of things. You need more time for that is the point. Number two, John calls Laodicea rich, but an earthquake almost leveled the city in AD 60. The city took many years to rebuild as well. So Laodicea was a very wealthy town, but they had an earthquake that pretty much destroyed them in AD 60. So if, if Revelation was written before AD 70, there was no time for Laodicea to be a rich city. Doesn't make sense. The Church of Smyrna was not founded until AD 64. So it cannot have endured for a long time, as Revelation 2 verse 8 through 11 seems to imply, if it was only three years old. The emperor worship described in chapters 13 through 20 matches best with Domitian. Now, this is, this is a preterist understanding, but still arguing that... So what is this talking about? If you're not familiar, let's take a little break. Chapters 13 through 20. Chapter 13 is... The first beast from the sea, the second beast, the image of the beast, you know, the mark of the beast, all these things are happening there, right? Now, I talk about this in great detail. It's not having to do with the past. However, what the point is that even if you're going to argue a preterist argumentation, you sort of refute yourself because Domitian, which we'll talk about here in just a second, is a better match for these things. Now, of course, that's not true, but if again, we're if we're arguing preterism, and we're trying to match the events of the image of the beast, mark of the beast, all this stuff, to past Roman emperors, which again, it's not true, but if we're trying to do that, Domitian, who was after 780, is a much better match. So it's sort of like you shoot yourself in the foot with preterism. Moving on. Though some earlier emperors proclaimed themselves gods, Domitian took the title Lord and God, usurping Kyrios as the title of Christ. The use of Babylon as a code word for a city in Revelation points to Rome. We'll look at this more in detail as well. The early daters say Babylon refers to Jerusalem. For Ezra to Baruch and the Sibylline oracles all refer to Rome as Babylon. So these are historical texts. They're not in the Bible, but they're historical texts. And they show that the Jews and Israelites referred to Rome as Babylon using, obviously, code because Babylon wasn't around anymore. Jews and Christians linked the cities together because both powers had sacked the holy city. Very important. The Pauline epistles refer to several heretical groups, but never to the heresies plaguing the churches of Asia Minor, which is the Nicolaitans. Gosh, I can't pronounce that word today. So a lot of evidence about the culture of the time, the historical circumstances, like earthquakes going on, when the churches were established, just doesn't add up to... Revelation being written in an earlier date before 780. It just really doesn't. But there's also some other arguments, too, that we want to look at. And this says, arguments against an early date. They see at least partial fulfillment in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 8070, though proponents of the early date read Revelation 11 
which is the two witnesses literally with its temple measurements, the measurements better match Ezekiel's eschatological temple. Yeah, because this is a spiritual reality. It's not talking about Jerusalem and the temple. The early daters insist that the number 666 refers to taking the Hebrew letters of Caesar, Nero, and adding them up in gematria. Though the arithmetic does indeed come to 666, such a view supposes a knowledge of Hebrew in a thoroughly Gentile audience. Which is true, because again, this is, you know, who would be doing gematria? You, you have to be very careful with gematria. You really do. Everybody's just all obsessed with gematria today and look, you know, look at the numbers on Trump and look at the numbers on Elon Musk or the numbers on this. And it's like, dude, gematria is mysticism. It is mysticism and God does not want you doing divination and mysticism. I look at the significance of 666 in the Mark of the Beast. I also give you two examples in that episode on how not to interpret Bible prophecy concerning this mark and the number. Very important number and very important examples of people doing it wrong so that you can understand what is good hermeneutic and what is not. The number 666 could be, I mean, look, go on your on your cell phone. <laughs> Let's just go something very silly, but go on your cell phone and type in mom, M-O-M, on your cell phone. What does it come out to? It comes to 666. Does that mean anything? Obviously not. It doesn't mean anything. So numbers, you can make numbers mean anything. It's the context of the number that matters and, and what it means. And I talk about that in my end time series. But moving on, with little to no justification in Greek, they tend to read Revelation chapter 1, all the tribes of the earth will mourn him as all the tribes of Israel will mourn him. So again, it's, it's very Jewish focused, but Revelation, the entire book of Revelation, especially chapter 17, which you will soon see is about worldwide impact. There's a worldwide impact to these things, and you're going to see many markers for that. It's not just the Jews 2,000 years ago. Very, very important. Now, there's another thing I want to show you. This is from, um, let's see, is Babylon, Rome, or Jerusalem? And this is just another piece of evidence. This is a great article, but what, just one tiny piece of evidence that wasn't mentioned in the other one. Epiphanius, which was also a church father, writing much later, I believe he was in the <clears throat> 4th century, like the 300s or 400s, he wrote in his Panarion, noted that it was believed that there was no Christian community in Theatira until late in the first century. Very, very important. So the first century, meaning zero to 100 AD, late in the first century is like 80, 90 AD, that kind of, you know, after 70 AD would be late in the first century. Theatira is one of the churches of Revelation, one of the seven churches that John wrote to. Now, Theatria, according to Epiphanius, who was another church father, again, all the church fathers are saying, like, look, this was written after 70 AD. But Epiphanius wrote in the Panarion, again, 3rd, 4th century, that there was no Christian community in Theatria until late in the 1st century. Not halfway through, not early, not mid, but late. So that, again, just adds another piece of evidence to this argument that Revelation was not written uh, before 780, it just wasn't. Now, this next one, it's from an article called Preterism, Examined and Refuted. And you can, again, you can reference these yourself. Look at the evidence. Don't, don't cling to teachings of men, but look at the evidence. Look at what 
the evidence has to say. This is uh, Christians alive during AD 70 as well as the church fathers believe the second coming was a future event. Very important, again, cultural historical evidence. The oldest extra-biblical Christian document known to exist is a document called the Didact, which I've talked about in my End Time series. We looked at this Didact several times. It is a simple collection of early church doctrine. It's not inspired, but it's a historical document from the second century. Very important. Most scholars believe it was written near the close of the first century, most likely around 80, 80. So it's first slash right, you know, Christians who were living around the time after the second, after the second temple was destroyed. This is a snapshot of their attitudes and beliefs, which is very important. It was used and cited by many of the church fathers as well as the Christian historian Eusebius. So its early existence is well documented. The full text of the Didact has been lost for centuries. Amazingly, it was rediscovered in Constantinople in 1873. The interesting thing that this document proves is that those who lived through the events of AD 70 regarded the events spoken in Matthew 24 as yet to be fulfilled prophecy. So people who lived in the time period of the Jewish temple being destroyed and afterward interpreted the Bible that these things had yet to be happening. They're a future situation. Now for them, of course, that's going to be future. That doesn't mean for us certain things are still future, which is a very important distinction. This early church document mentions the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, and the Second Coming as events that were yet to come. So the Didact is a good piece of evidence from the very, very, very believers who lived through the events surrounding AD 70 that the Preterist view is incorrect. In addition to the Didact, early church fathers like Papias, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin the Martyr, wrote of a future second coming. So everybody who's a hyper-preterist or thinks the second coming has already happened, you're not in alignment with centuries and centuries of Christian belief. Preterism was not believed by anybody up until, you'll find out soon enough why, the Counter-Reformation, when the Jesuits created preterism. But I digress. Let's move to the next one. A strong case can be made that the book of Revelation was written approximately in 1895. So late first century. But but there is compelling evidence in the writings of the church fathers that the book of Revelation was written approximately 25 years after the events surrounding the destruction of, of Jerusalem. For example, consider Irenaeus. He lived from AD 120 to 202. He was the bishop in the city of Lyon in modern France. He grew up in Smyrna, one of the cities where the book of Revelation was first circulated. That was one of the churches too. They were very persecuted. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, so immediate succession. In Irenaeus' work, titled Against Heresies, he tells us when John had his apocalyptic vision. We will not, have, this is quoting Irenaeus now, we will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist, for if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in the present time, it would have been announced by him, the Apostle John, who beheld the apocalyptic vision. So the power that was coming, the, the system, the enemy, he was still on his way, according to Irenaeus. This was after the destruction of the second temple. Irenaeus believed that these things had yet to happen, meaning the preterist view of the Antichrist as a Roman emperor that was basically destroying the second temple is false, not according to church fathers, not according to Christians who were living around in that time, experiencing those things. 
They lived through those things and they said, yeah, that's not it. It's still yet to come. Imagine, this is why preterism is just a false teaching. But moving on, I want you to notice when he says John the Apostle had his apocalyptic vision. Quote, for that was seen not very long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of Domitian's reign. So Irenaeus says that John had his apocalyptic vision, meaning the things that he writes in Revelation, towards the end of Domitian's reign. Irenaeus places the date of the authorship of the book of Revelation sometime around AD 95, meaning towards the end of Domitian's reign, long after the events of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. This statement by Irenaeus is devastating to the preterist position. Of course it is. But let's suppose for preterist's sake that Irenaeus was a sloppy historian and that the book of Revelation was written near the beginning of Domitian's reign, which is AD 81. That would still place its writing after the destruction of Jerusalem. Clement of Alexandria, who lived from about AD 150 to 215, also testifies to a post-AD 70 date for the writing of the book of Revelation. He mentions that John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos until after the death of the tyrant, which is another reference to Domitian, who died in AD 96. Victorinus was an early church bishop who suffered martyrdom around AD 304. He said in his commentary on the book of Revelation that John had his vision of the apocalypse while he was in the island of Patmos, condemned, by, condemned to the mines by Caesar Domitian. Eusebius, from 260 AD to 340, he's known as the father of church history due to his classic work, Ecclesiastical History. Several times in his writings, he also dates the book of Revelation to the reign of Domitian. Jerome, who was the one who translated the scriptures to Latin, lived from 340 to 419. He states clearly in two places that John was banished under Domitian, and that is when he wrote the book of Revelation. So, what do we take from this? Well, we take that all the church fathers unanimously agreed that John's exile was by Domitian. It was during Domitian's reign. And so, whether he wrote it at the beginning of Domitian's reign or after, it actually doesn't even matter. Although there's evidence to suggest that it was towards the end of Domitian's reign, meaning around AD 95, 96, something like that. But again, it doesn't really matter for preterism because either way, it's after 70 AD. So you have a church historian, you have Christians who lived during that time all testifying to the same thing. Christians who lived around the first century believed that all these things were yet to be in the future, even though they lived to see the Roman emperors do what they did to the Jews, to the Jewish temple. But why? Because they realized that Bible prophecy has nothing to do with the Jews after the New Testament. Bible prophecy concerns those who are in Christ, the church, the people of God, who has always been the Israel of faith, not the Jews. They recognized that the Jews got what was coming to them because they rejected the Messiah. It was Bible prophecy and everything that the prophets were prophesying about was not leading up to just the destruction of the, the second temple. But there's another piece of evidence that's really interesting too, which is, this coin, okay, here it is. It was actually one of the old tabs that I had, but I closed it on accident. This coin is a Roman coin from the Domitian's, from Domitian's rule, basically. And I'll read you a little bit about it. It's very interesting. You can see the little boy here with uh, seven stars and so on. But essentially, Emperor Domitian had the coin struck, then minted to commemorate the death of his son. 
whom he had deified by calling himself Divine Caesar. Additionally, Emperor Domitian took the title Dominus et Deus, meaning Lord and God. By the way, the Pope had this title too, so that's another can of worms. But for this, that is Domitian's son, to be likewise deified, it made Domitian's son the son of the Lord and God. So Domitian, again, who is the emperor that was ruling during John's revelation, had this coin minted of his dead son with seven stars in his hands, basically, which is very interesting. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, of course, there are many parallels with seven stars and the Son of God in Revelation, like Revelation 1, 16, Revelation 2, verse 1, to chapter, chapter 2, verse 18. And the commentary is this. It seems pretty clear that at the very least, chapters 1 and 2 of the Apocalypse were written after this coin was struck as a response to the emperor, it is to his claim for deity, basically, and as to the apotheosis of his deceased son. It would seem the author wanted to make the point that it was neither the emperor Domitian or his son who is the Lord God, but rather God, the Father, and Jesus of Nazareth who ought to bear these titles. So what is what is the relationship here? Well, this coin, which is very much reminiscent, or I should say it's, it's paralleled to the verses in question in Revelation about the seven stars, the Son of God, and all these types of things that John saw, very interesting, an argument is that if Revelation was to be written, then it was very likely written during Domitian's reign, again, as a response to his blasphemous, you know, usage of, of the title Lord God and basically deifying himself, deifying his son, and, you know, minting a coin with seven stars in his hands, like, no, buddy, that's not, you're not God. I'll show you who's God, who actually has the seven stars. That's the that's the line of thinking. But if that's the case, again, it's during the reign of Domitian. And Domitian was after 70 AD. So what is the conclusion of all of these pieces of evidence? And of course, these are just scratching the surface. The conclusion is that the evidence is very heavily on the side of Revelation being written after 70 AD, which means that preterism is a false teaching. It really is, and it really behooves you to understand your history and to understand where your beliefs come from, because there are many problems with preterism, and one of the main ones is, I would say the first one to list off, which I mentioned just a little bit ago, is that preterism was created by the Jesuits. It was created by a man named Luis de Alcazar during the Counter-Reformation. I've spoken about this countless times in many of my episodes on End Times Events, People believe today Catholic Jesuit eschatology. When the, when the reformers realized that Bible prophecy is to be interpreted historically, and they realized that they are under the beast system that the prophets prophesied about, the beast, which is the Catholic papacy, the Catholic institution, created the Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation to destroy Protestantism. Now, one of the fruits of that was to create alternative views of the end time so that you don't identify the beast. And of course, in typical dialectic fashion, where the devil either pushes you to the left or to the right, God forbid you're on the narrow road. The Jesuits came up with preterism, where everything's pushed to the past, we don't have to worry about it. And of course, the center of Bible prophecy are the Jews. And they also came up with futurism, where everything's pushed to the future. We don't have to worry about it. It's in the future. It's coming, but we don't have to worry about it right now. Don't look for the Antichrist in history in front of you. 
that is called futurism. And futurism is premillennialism, dispensationalism, a lot of different beliefs out there. But those two beliefs, preterism and futurism, were not historically taught by the church. I mean, some people believed in a literal millennial reign, that's true. That, that is a true identity or a, a true idea throughout the church. That was a historic idea. Historic premillennialism is true. But all of the idea of a Jewish-focused end times with walking into a third Jewish temple, these types of things are created by the Jesuits. They're Jesuit eschatologies. Futurism was created by Francisco Ribera, Manuel Lacunza, and Robert Bellarmine. You can look these people up. I've talked about them quite a bit. That was 500 years ago. And preterism was created by Luis de Alcazar. So in this way, choose your, you know, take the red pill or blue pill, whichever one, just don't look straight ahead, right? It's dialectic stuff. And you have to realize that these are dialectics designed to obfuscate the identity of the beast. So that right away is another piece of evidence why you should question preterist teachings because they were created by the Jesuits. Preterism was for sure, at least you with futurism, you can say that some part of futurism was part of the early church. Like some people believe in a future millennial reign of Christ. That was taught for sure. Some, the church fathers believe it, but again, church fathers were kind of all over the place on a lot of things. But nonetheless, it, it was an old review. But preterism, that things had already happened, that Jesus said even returned already, nobody believed that, man. That is, nobody believed that. Everybody had their hopes in a future return of Christ. And certainly they didn't believe that all of Bible prophecy was just for the Jews in 70 AD. So preterism is a false teaching because of many reasons that we still have yet to cover. One of the big ones is who it was created by, which is the Antichrist power on the earth to distract you. None of the church fathers mentioned Christ's return as having already happened. There's literally no evidence of that. Nobody believed this. And, of course, the identity of the beast was hidden so that you couldn't see how the Antichrist power currently in front of you, that's been around for hundreds and hundreds and almost thousands of years, has fulfilled these things. No other church, or I should say no other organization or power in history, has fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel and John like the Roman Catholic Church. Now, again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if that sounds like news to you, if you're upset by that, then go watch my previous episodes on Mystery of Babylon, on the woman riding the beast, on the beasts of Revelation and Daniel, to see how all of it is consistent when you read it in context of Daniel. But, you know, if you're the Antichrist power and you want to hide your identity, then you will push people either to the left or to the right. doesn't matter which way they go. Just don't look in history to identify who the real Antichrist power is. Again, we saw the Didac in the second century, first century. It was quoted a lot in the second century. It was written in the first century. But nonetheless, these, these Christians believed in a future happening of these events from Matthew 24. They weren't just applicable to Jerusalem being sacked in AD 70. But now I want to talk about John and Daniel being parallel books. That's another piece of evidence why preterism is just, again, it's, it's a false teaching, and it really is for so many reasons. And a lot of people are fooled by it, which just blows my mind because Bible prophecy is designed for everybody to know where you're at in history. So to have, to believe that God doesn't care about his people to give them prophetic guidance 
is really a very antichrist thing. And if, of course, if you know where the preterism is from, which is the Jesuits, then of course that makes sense. But John and Daniel are parallel books. In, in, and I've talked about this before, so I'm just going to highlight these points. But in Daniel, the vision is sealed up. In John, it's opened. They both have beasts, and the beast of the sea in John, in Revelation 13, is a conglomerate of all the four beasts in Daniel, which is true. The final power of this Babylonian system is a conglomerate of Rome, of Greece, of Medo-Persia, of Babylon. That's why she's called Mystery Babylon. The beast of the sea in John is the little horn power in Daniel that comes out of Rome. They both rule for 1260 years, and history proves this from 538 AD to 1798. The papacy ruling where the kings of the earth gave their power to the Pope for 1260 years, ruling with an iron fist. And Rome, during John's time, was not completed. This is a very important point. John knew his scriptures. He was playing off of Daniel's prophecy and and filling it in with color. Now, if the little horn and the first beast are the same, which they are, and the little horn comes out of Rome, and Rome was not yet done as an empire during John's time, then that means that the final power, the little horn, the first beast, was still future for John, not coming up in like a decade or a Roman emperor. It was a future reality. It was coming out of Rome. It wasn't a Roman power. It was coming out of Rome. Very, very important. But that requires you to read Daniel and Revelation parallel in context. The false prophet in Revelation is a power in a kingdom. He's a beast. He's not an individual. Again, if, you're the, if you are the beast system, then you're, one of the things you'll do is you're going to invert the truth. So where the Bible says beasts are kingdoms and powers, you're going to turn them into individuals. This is why preterism looks for emperors as the beast. But Nero didn't have a false prophet. Nero, first off, again, beasts are powers and kingdoms, just like in Daniel. They're parallel books. Beasts are not individuals. And the false prophet, who looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon, did Nero have a false prophet who was a Christian, who looked like Christian, but he was legislating by, you know, satanic means and and making satanic laws and doing all these things? No, because first off, beasts aren't individuals. Beasts are kingdoms and powers. And I talk about who the real false prophet is. It's the United States that looks like a looks like a lamb, meaning looks Christian, we're a Christian nation, but speaks like a dragon. We have a statue of Lucifer in Ellis Island, bringing light to the world. What light? The light of the false Christian system that's on the horizon. The Christian nationalist system that's going to retake the world. The world, people don't realize that the majority of the last 2,000 years, the majority has been a Christian nationalist system. Do you think that that's going away? No, it's coming back. So when you think that everything's happened already and the things are just going to get better, like post-millennialists do, you're walking right into that trap. So I hope you won't be fooled and I hope you'll take to heart what I'm speaking to you today because these things are very important. But again, Revelation has worldwide impact. The mark of the beast, the image of the beast, the confederation of kings giving their power to Mystery Babylon for a particular time. These things are worldly impacting things, not just local to Jerusalem. 
1260 days are actually 1260 years because we talked about this, the book of Daniel, the prophecy of the 70 weeks is interpreted historically, and we can prove that with archaeology. 70 weeks are actually 70 weeks of years, 490 years. So what that means is that all of Daniel's time prophecies are years. They're not days. Because the 70 weeks is part of the 2300-day prophecy in Daniel 8. So all of the time periods are chunks within that prophecy, and they're years, not days. And of course, the 1260 is mirrored in John. And as a result, that means you're looking for years, not periods of days. But again, if you're the Antichrist, if you're the, the Antichrist power, and you don't want people identifying you by looking at history, then what do you do? Well, oh, th they're actual literal days. They're just three and a half years. So yeah, it happened in the past sometime. Or it's going to happen in the future for three and a half years. Do you see how this works? The tactics of the devil to, to invert what God says and then you're looking at, at totally different things. When you look at history, 1260 years, you look for historical time periods. You look for kingdoms and powers. You look for principalities. If you look for spiritual changes, cultural changes, you look for the big things, man. But if you invert that to three and a half years, you look for physical fleshly things. Oh, it was this guy. It was this Roman emperor at some point in time. It's easy to appropriate things if you have wrong assumptions. This is this is the main point for today, probably. If your assumptions are wrong, the rest, don't put your ladder on the wrong wall, only to realize as you climb that you've propped it up against the wrong wall because your assumptions are incorrect. But the 1260 days are actually 1260 years. And that means the revelation is dealing with long periods of time, not short ones. Drastically different view of Bible prophecy. So, conclusion is that preterism is a false teaching. It really is. It's created by the beast to hide its identity. Unfortunately, many Protestants today, which the Jesuits were created to destroy, and of course the Counter-Reformation is right on schedule, but many Protestants are preterists. They're post-millennialists, or they just believe in preterism for one reason or another. But this was never, ever taught by the church historically. Nobody was a preterist in the church fathers. Like, there's no evidence for it whatsoever. It was created by the Jesuits, Luis de Alcazar. And there's a lot of evidence that says the Revelation was written after 70 AD. Revelation's relationship to Daniel affirms all of these things and, and shows the historical perspective. It also confirms that things are in the future in terms of not like futurism, but not just having to deal with the destruction of the temple but rather like the church age until the return of Christ. Christ ascended, began the millennial reign, and he's going to return a particular time. Until he returns, God has given us prophecy to understand the unfolding of history. When it says he must reign until his enemies are put under his feet, well, that whole phrase is encapsulated in John's revelation. All the things that are happening until Christ returns as the enemy is being put under his feet. That all is happening in Revelation. As the Antichrist power comes and it's going to get judged, there's a lot of things that have to happen. Now, we have gone through most of Bible prophecy. If you have checked my um, the resources for this end time series, there's a timeline that I've created, a visual timeline of all the prophecies as they are fulfilled in history. 
you can see that most prophecies have already been fulfilled, for sure. But we still have a few things to go, like with Mystery Babylon. And of course, that brings us to Revelation 17. Now, some preterists say that, well, okay, Revelation was probably written after AD 70, but it's a reflection on the past. It's, it's still having to do with the past, but he's just reflecting on the past, which again, first argument against that is, show me another prophecy in the Bible where it is a reflection on the past. God would never do such a thing where he would give you a ref, like a vision to just reflect, you're reflecting on the past. No, prophecy is designed to edify and tell you beforehand so that you know, first off, that God is sovereign over time but that you are also prepared spiritually, mentally, physically. So show me another prophecy where in the Bible this happens, because there is none. That's the first argument. The second argument against this idea that Revelation 17 is just a reflection is that there are other timestamps that, again, connect this to a future situation for John. Not for us necessarily, because there are some things that happen, but for John, it was very future. And one of those things has to do with the bottomless pit. And I've talked about this again in my end time series in the, in the particularly the, uh, the two witnesses episode. So go check that out. But in Revelation 17, verse eight, it says this, the beast, meaning the beast that the woman is riding, you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. This is a very important time marker. He's about to rise from the bottomless pit in this vision and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So there's there's some important qualities of this beast, which if it's similar to the first beast, which basically was, then it suffered a mortal wound, and then it comes back into full power, which is this Christian nationalist system where the kings of the earth will give their power now, there are many angles of this. The first beast is the little horn. Then there's the image of the beast, which describes this Christian nationalist system being constructed by the false prophet, which is the United States, through many false signs and wonders. And then the final iteration of this is Mystery Babylon. It's the woman, the apostate church, writing this governmental system, this beast system. But I talk about all that anyway. The point here is this. He's about to rise from the bottomless pit. Now, in Revelation 11, which is the two witnesses, let's read this, 7 through 10. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Very important. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. We'll come back to this later. So keep it on the back burner where their Lord was crucified. Because they say, oh, see, it's proof it's Jerusalem. We'll come back to this. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets made a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So this is talking about the two witnesses. Now, again, I've talked about this in the episode on the two witnesses, so make sure you check that out. This is fulfilled through the French Revolution. The two witnesses are the word of God, testifying to the truth. Now, what happened in the French Revolution? They burned Bibles. They banned the Bible for three and a half years. The French Revolution was an atheist takeover. It brought in secularism and eventually communism. 
secret societies were behind the French Revolution. The Jesuits were behind French Revolution. So there's a lot to talk about with the French Revolution. But the point is that, what's the time marker? Well, it tells you in Revelation 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, we know that the French Revolution banned the Bible in 1795, I want to say. I could be wrong about that date, but it was three and a half years during the French Revolution. In either case, the point is that when they finish their testimony, that's 1260 years that the Word of God is basically prophesying in sackcloth and ashes, which is the true believers. The, the true believers were persecuted, they were humbled. The true church was very, was very humbled by the imposter church, by Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon and the Bride of Christ are two different entities. One is chosen by God to be saved, which is the genuine believers. The other is a physical counterfeit. And I've talked so much about this, but the point is, is that this is tied to the coming of the beast from the bottomless pit comes out and kills the two witnesses. Well, when are the two witnesses done with their testimony? 1260 years. Well, that's obviously far in the future for John because the two witnesses parallels the woman running away from the dragon for 1260 years and it parallels the first beast from the sea ruling with an iron fist for 1260 years. John is telling you of a situation which is the 1260 years of papal supremacy where you have basically this church-state union that is demanding worship to a god-king, which is the pope, and persecuting anybody who refuses to do so. It translated the Bible to Latin. Nobody could read the Word of God. True believers were basically humbled. The Word of God was in sackcloth and ashes. It was a very dark time for the Word of God. And that culminates with the French Revolution, where the Bible was basically burned and banned, and atheism was basically proclaimed as the new thing. So that's why the two witnesses were killed for three and were left for three and a half days, prophetic days, which is years. And people basically rejoiced because they didn't have to have the burden of the law of God on their hearts. All these things are fulfilled in history. But again, when did this happen? 1798. Now, I've talked about how in 1798, the French Revolution brought about the dialectic between left and right, liberalism and conservatism. Pushed even farther apart, it would be atheism and Christian nationalism. And these two dialectics have gone back and forth, back and forth throughout the last 150 years, 200 years. And especially now we are coming to a head where the deep, dark, deep state, whatever bad deep state, the black hats, are being exposed by the white hats where people are demanding a return to religion, to Christian nationalism. I cover Christian nationalism in all my news uh, updates every week. Not all the time, but I've covered a lot of Christian nationalism. And in my end time series, there's so much about it. It's coming back into the forefront. And it will start in the U.S. The U.S.'s role is the false prophet to convince the world that this is a good thing. And it's already happening. If Again, if you think I'm crazy when I say these things, then go watch those episodes. Go watch the image of the beast and the counterfeit spirit. I promise you will learn something that probably not too many people are talking about. But nonetheless, the 
beast that comes from the bottomless pit kills the two witnesses. When does that happen? After 1260 years. So the beast that emerges, meaning this system that's going to finally take over, this dialectical system, this, this worldwide system, actually started during the French Revolution. That's when it emerged. Because the French Revolution started a new thing. It started the push from left to right to bring people eventually back to the Mother Church, which is what we're going to see in our lifetime, very likely. So that all happened in the future, meaning that the woman who's riding the beast, the beast is identified by being tied to the two witnesses, but the two witnesses don't finish their testimony until 1260 years of prophesying. For John, that was very, very far in the future. So another reason, yet again, why preterism is wrong. And it cannot be about the past. So, main points. The two witnesses finish their testimony. That's when the beast rises from the bottomless pit and kills them. 1260 years, finished in 1798. The French Revolution, it brought about these dialectical systems. And... What that means is that Mystery Babylon, as an entity, was not active prior to 1798. Mystery Babylon is the final iteration that John sees of this Antichrist system. And she rides a beast that's coming from the bottomless pit. Well, that beast, which is a kingdom and a power in a political system, did not come out until what? Until the two witnesses were killed. Do you see how all this relates? And if you see Bible prophecy historically fulfilled, but how do you know that the two witnesses are 1260 years and not three and a half years? They're not literal days. Well, again, John builds off of Daniel. He builds off of the 1260 period in Daniel, but Daniel's time prophecies are historical because of the prophecy of Jesus of the 70 weeks. It's all about Christ. If you understand that that's fulfilled historically, then all the time periods in in Daniel are historical. John obviously relays the same period of time, 1260 years, with the first beast. The first beast is obviously the little horn. We looked at that in the series. But what else is happening there in the 1260s? Well, the woman is running away from the dragon, meaning the true believers are being persecuted, which is true. And the two witnesses are in sackcloth and ashes, meaning the word of God is being suppressed. All of that coincides with the rule of the papacy from 538 AD to 1798 as an iron fist and as the the Christian nationalist power. So do you see how all of this ties link by link by link by link? And if you have to, if you don't, I should say, if you don't use context, you're going to miss all these links and create all sorts of theories. But Mystery Babylon cannot be Jerusalem for all of these reasons. And now let's look at the identity of the woman who sits on seven hills, or I should say the city, because this is really the issue. Is Jerusalem the city of seven hills? And of course it's not, but I intend to prove that to you with history and with scripture, because a lot of people believe this. But the argument, again, goes something like this. Well, it's actually, hills was supposed to be mountains, and this is a conspiracy and all these, you know, versions of the Bible. Only the King James tells the truth because it's mountains and Jerusalem has mountains. You know, hills hills and mountains are two different things, so there you go. Well, let's look at a few things. First, we want to look at the preterist understanding of the whore of Babylon or the city of seven hills. And this is 
the Preterist understanding on Wikipedia, it's Jerusalem. Biblical scholars such as Alan James Beagley, such and such and such, lots of people point out that although Rome was the prevailing pagan power in the first century when the book of Revelation was written, the symbolism of the whore of Babylon refers not to an invading infidel or foreign power, it, refer, it refers to an apostate false queen, a former bride who has been unfaithful and who, even though she has been divorced and cast out because of unfaithfulness, continues to falsely claim to be the queen of the spiritual realm. This symbolism did not fit the case of Rome at the time. Proponents of this view suggest that the seven mountains in Revelation 17 verse 9 are the seven hills on which Jerusalem stands, and the fall of Babylon in Revelation 18 is the fall and destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is the preterist view of basically the, the idea that Jerusalem is the city of seven hills. Now, I want to introduce you to this list of cities claimed to be built on seven hills. Let's see. Well, in Africa, you've got like five. The Americas, you've got probably, you know, I don't know, 30. Asia has, you know, probably another 10 or 12. Europe has another, let's say, 40. Oceania has a few. And some other ones, seven hills in Australia. So you have probably over 100 cities, give or take, in the world that could be called the city of seven hills. Or I should say you could think of them as a city of seven hills or a city that sits on seven hills. So how do you know? The question is, how do you know? If that's the case, how do you know which one is the right city of seven hills? Well, the, the answer, as always, is the word of the day, which is context. What does context tell you? What does historical context tell you? Scriptural context? cultural context. What does all that context tell you? So let's look at the context, because one of those pieces of evidence is this idea of Rome as a goddess. In ancient Rome, this is Roma, personification. In ancient Rome, Roman religion, Roma was a female deity who personified the city of Rome and more broadly the Roman state. She was created and promoted to represent and propagate certain of Rome's ideas about itself and to justify its rule. She was portrayed on coins, sculptures, and architectural designs, and in official games and festivals. Images of Rome had elements in common with other goddesses, such as Rome's Minerva, her Greek equivalent Athena, and various manifestations of the Greek Tyche, who protected Greek city-states. Among these, Roma stands dominant over piled weapons that represent her conquests and promising protection to the obedient. This is a very interesting little statement. But this is a personification of Rome, and you can see basically these coins. We're going to look at some examples in just a second. An image of Dea Roma on Caesar of Emperor Vespasian, this is a coin by that Vespasian minted, shows her reclining on Rome's seven hills with various accoutrements in this interpretation, the readers of the book of Revelation, familiar with the iconography of Rome's coins, would understand who was being referred to. Very interesting bit of history. Now, if you look up the personification of Rome, you see these Roman coins. This is a graphic of it. You can see here's Rome. She's dressed in kind of more masculine garb, but it's, it's a woman. And she's sitting on seven hills. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 
It's the woman who sits on seven hills, Roma. So this is a historical thing that happened. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because it is important because the idea that Rome is would never have come into the minds of people as Babylon or that the woman who's sitting on seven hills would, would have no historical precedent, even in John's time. That's a false idea, which is actually proven by this coin. This is minted in by Vespasian, which is in the first century. First and second century, I believe. I could be wrong about that, but it was early on. But the point is that this coin shows proof very on, very early on of the Roman idea of itself. That the Rome was not just the city of seven hills, which it's called, we'll look at this in just a second, but that Rome was a female deity, a female deity that was called Roma, and she sat on seven hills. So people would understand when they see Mystery Babylon, which you'll see that Christians understood Babylon as Rome, that this is talking about a Roman power of some kind. But of course, this is in the future still, so nobody really knew how it would all play out, because from their perspective, the power that was coming out of Rome, aka the little horn from Daniel, the final power that would come out of the Roman system, that was still future for them. So it was it was a mystery. It was the mystery of iniquity that Paul speaks of and we talked about. But how again, how do you know which is the city of seven hills? Well, again, historical and and scriptural and cultural context. We looked at Rome as a personification. We looked at the Roman coin. Now the question is, did the Jews and Christians of John's time, and even maybe like a century or two afterward, did they consider Jerusalem as the city of seven hills? Was that like a title for Jerusalem ever in the Bible? Was the culture in Israel or in the Gentiles, the Greeks, did they ever consider Jerusalem the city of seven hills or seven mountains? The answer is no. But you know who was considered the city of seven hills? Rome. Rome was considered and called the city of seven hills. And the question is this. Now, did the Christians of John's time and nearby consider or call Rome Babylon? We know Rome is the city of seven hills. It was founded on seven hills. Its title was the city of seven hills. It was like a, a moniker for Rome. But did Christians, early Christians, consider Rome Babylon? Was that something that was discussed? And the answer is yes, it was. We looked at a couple of things, like with the um, uh, historical documents that we looked at previously, like Ezra, Baruch, and the Sibylline Oracles. All those historical documents where Christians and Israelites were referring to Rome as... Babylon. So that was a thing that people did, was they were already calling Rome Babylon. They were attributing the Babylonian spirit to Rome. Now you also have in scripture, in 1 Peter 5 verse 13, Peter says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now who is this Mark? The, the question is, who is this Mark? Because he is actually the Mark that marks what this Babylon is referring to. Very interesting. And we know that Mark was, was in Rome with Paul. Colossians 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So Paul is in prison in Rome. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, 
concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Mark and Aristarchus are in Rome with Paul. The same Mark that Peter, back in one chapter, uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, says, she who is at Babylon, who's likewise chosen, send you greetings, and also does Mark. So Mark, and so does Mark, meaning Mark is with the woman who is in Babylon. Mark is in Babylon. But Paul says that Mark is with him in Rome. So what is Peter doing here? He's calling Rome Babylon because he's disguising the the things that he's talking about so that Christians understand, but non-Christians don't make the connection because obviously Babylon hasn't been around by that point in time. It was destroyed several centuries before. Now, another important thing that John connects Rome to Babylon with is in Revelation 18 verse 4, he says this, he says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is a direct parallel to Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 45, where he says, Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of Yahweh. This is a direct parallel. Now, who's Jeremiah speaking of here? Jeremiah is speaking of Babylon. He's not speaking of Jerusalem. So John is attributing this statement in Revelation 18 to Babylon. But Babylon obviously hasn't existed as an actual empire. It's existed spiritually. We know that from the statue in Daniel 2 of the the statue vision that Nebuchadnezzar had where basically it's one system. It's going to degenerate over time, but it's one system. It's one Babylonian system. So spiritually, Babylon has continued. Even the beasts of Daniel, if you read the beasts, it says that they're given power to continue for a short while, even though they're conquered. Meaning all of this adds up to the same thing, meaning that there's these attitudes and cultural beliefs from Babylon through Persia, through Greece, through Rome, all these things are still alive and well today. And they're in the final system, this conglomerate system that is still essentially Babylon. But it's not obviously the real Babylon, the the historical Babylon, but it's spiritually Babylon. This is what it's all pointing to. So John is warning you to get out of Babylon, not out of Jerusalem out of Babylon, because it parallels the warning Jeremiah gave to people to get out of Babylon, actually the real Babylon, not Jerusalem. So what is the conclusion from all these important things that we just reviewed? Well, Jerusalem was never called the city of seven hills. It was never known as the city of seven hills either. That was never part of its moniker. Peter referred to Rome as Babylon. Other Jews and texts around that time, like Ezra, again, not Ezra in the Bible, but Esdras, Baruch, um, the Sibylline Oracle, all these historical texts refer to Rome as Babylon. So we have precedent for that. We also have a precedent that Rome was deified as a woman that sits on seven hills, that was very arrogant and very pompous. So that's already historical information during the relevant period of the time that John was writing. So people would have recognized that Babylon was very much a Roman power of some kind. Maybe not one that they would understand fully, but it was a Roman power nonetheless. And we just talked about the Daniel 2 statue, where you have this Babylonian system continuing through time until what? Until the return of Christ. So preterists have no answer to that, because the Babylonian statue continues, continues, it's fulfilled various empires, and then it gets hit by a stone 
which is the return of Christ, and destroyed finally when, when Jesus returns. So this Babylonian system stays throughout time until the very end. So it's one spiritual power with different packaging. And of course, the final packaging is the mystery Babylon, which is the woman riding the beast, which is a Christian nationalist system. Now I want to move a little bit into some spiritual context. And the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that Mystery Babylon is a worldwide power. Preterists believe that, you know, this is all about Jerusalem, but it really, that's not what scripture tells you. Scripture tells you that Mystery Babylon is a worldwide impacting power that everybody will be impacted by one way or another. Now, a couple clues are Revelation 14, verse 8. It says, another angel a second followed saying, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is spiritual unfaithfulness. The question is, did Jerusalem, at least by 70 AD, make all the nations drunk, meaning intoxicated with her way of worship? Is, is this fulfilled in Jerusalem by 70 AD? Absolutely not. People hated the Jews. They were constantly dominating them, throwing them, you know, to the left, to the right. Captivities, Babylonian, Assyrian, Greeks, the Romans. Jerusalem did not intoxicate people with her way of doing things. But you know who did? The Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has intoxicated the world with its way of worship. There are 1.2 billion Catholics in the world. Islam was also created by the Catholic Church. We'll get back to this later. But a lot of Protestants today are warming back up to the Catholic Church with her way of worshiping, with her way of doing things. She's the one who has intoxicated the world with her way of worship. All nations is all nations, not like a few. It doesn't apply to Jerusalem whatsoever. Now, another one is Revelation 17, verse 5. It says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. This is a worldwide situation. Mother of the prostitutes of the earth and of earth's abominations. So not just locally, like the Middle East's abominations, because of course the Israelites hoard after other gods and they were certainly apostate many times. But we're talking about an entity that is the mother of earth's abominations, meaning if you look at history, you can trace practically every large abomination to the Catholic Church, or to the, I should say, yes, that's true, but to this particular entity. Now let's look at the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church started Islam, the Jesuits, Crusades, Sunday Law persecution, Inquisition, French Revolution, which led to communism, they propped up Hitler, they created the Zionist state of Israel. They started the charismatic movement. All these things, prosperity teaching, all of them have their origin in the efforts of the mother of harlots and prostitutes and abominations of the, of the earth. All of these things do, and I've documented them thoroughly. It behooves you to know your history because that is much more applicable to the Catholic Church and the Catholic system, not Catholic people who are well-meaning Catholics and trying to worship God based on what they were raised with. Although you should get out of Babylon, if you are Catholic, I highly pressure you and encourage you to do so because the Catholic system is the Antichrist power. 
And hopefully this won't insult you. This won't annoy you because it's the truth. It really is. It's what the prophets warned us about. But nonetheless, the Catholic system fulfills these prophecies much more than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not the mother of abominations of the earth. Certainly not by AD 70. You didn't have Zionism by that point. I mean, I could say like, okay, you could look today and say, well, the Jews are doing this and that and they're Zionists. And okay, but if you're a preterist, you're arguing that Jerusalem was the mother of earth's abominations by 8070, which is just not true. Not true at all. And also mother of harlots too, which we'll talk about in the future, which is this idea of a harlot is a, is a, it's an apostate body of believers. So if she's the mother of harlots, well, the mother church is the mother of apostate churches with all this <clears throat> denominationalism. But Jerusalem by 8070 was not the mother of harlots. There, what other harlots existed? Because first off, as of the New Testament, you had the, the bride of Christ. And by 8070, there weren't any denominations. That's what a harlot is by definition. It's, it's a apostate group of believers. And in the Old Testament, that was Israel. In the New Testament, that's the church. So a woman who is a harlot represents a church. But if there are many harlots, that means that this particular prostitute who's riding the beast is the mother of other churches. Is that true historically? Yes, the Catholic Church is the mother church. And everybody who split off from her has taken some of her teachings one way or another of institutionalized Christianity. That's why they're harlots. So that doesn't apply to Jerusalem. It applies to the Catholic Church. But here's another one, Revelation 18, verses 3 through 5. It says, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now you tell me, does this apply to Jerusalem by 70 AD? Absolutely not, because first off, Jerusalem is not a mercantile power. Certainly not a seafaring power. But you know who was? Rome. Rome was in charge of Western Europe, Roman Empire, with all of its ports and, and trade routes. Spain was like completely Catholic and Catholicized all of, of the Americas, who basically they went to, you know, everywhere. All around the world they went. And that was a Catholic power. The merchants of the earth grew rich through Mystery Babylon's power and luxurious living. So this is not having to do with Jerusalem whatsoever. It's a worldwide situation. And the only one that qualifies is the Catholic Church, yet again, because it was a mercantile power. So the conclusion is that this great city that Revelation speaks of is not Jerusalem. I'm sorry to say it, but it's not Jerusalem. Actually, I'm not sorry because you should know the truth. But I'm sorry if I offend you. That's basically what I wanted to say is I don't want to offend anybody, but ultimately people will take offense because they want to cling to false teachings and they don't want to support their beliefs by the evidence. What does the evidence tell you? It tells you time and again that preterism is wrong and it's a false teaching. Because first and foremost, Mystery Babylon has worldwide impact. It's not talking about Jerusalem in 70 AD, which had not any impact. It had barely any impact. It was a subjugated city by the Romans. Now, we want to come back to this Objection from Revelation eleven eighteen or eleven eight, where it says spiritually the city where Jesus was crucified. We'll read it again. It says, and their dead bodies, this is the two witnesses, will lie in the street of the great city. There again, there's that mention of the great city, 
that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So people use this verse to say, see, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, so there you go. The great city has to be Jerusalem. Has to be, right? Well, again, what's the context? What is the context of this prophecy? The prophecy is the two witnesses. So it's dealing with spiritual things over long periods of time. And we have to take it in context. If it's literal, then okay, it's Jerusalem. But again, does that make sense with everything else? The answer is no. Because there's two problems here. Again, the first one is that, there's many problems actually, but the first problem is the two witnesses, they take 1,260 years to finish their testimony. They really do. I, I break this down so many times, both in the two witnesses episode and all the other episodes that talk about the 1260 time period. You have to interpret Revelation in context of Daniel. Daniel is historically interpreted and fulfilled because of the 70 weeks prophecy. That's the key. Every other prophecy in Daniel is historically fulfilled. And because John builds off of Daniel, these prophecies are years and clearly they have their fulfillment. When you look for these periods of time, they're very obvious in history. But nonetheless, the, the two witnesses take 1260 years to finish their testimony. So that period ended in 1798, and there's nothing that happened in Jerusalem in 1798. So if we're reading this literally, it doesn't apply to Jerusalem whatsoever, even if we use the historical years as a guide, which is the true way to interpret this, but there's nothing that happened in Jerusalem. So again, doesn't point to Jerusalem. We know that the French Revolution was started by the Jesuits. Again, they banned and burned Bibles for three and a half years. There was atheism, idolatry, the Enlightenment era, humanism, communism, rebellion. All these different things were coming out of the French Revolution. And they were basically an affront to God, atheism. Now, that's going to mean something very important because, again, this is the word for spiritually, it says the city that was symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So symbolically, the word here in Greek is uh, pneumatikos. Let's see if the, let's see if the KJV has it. Yeah, pneumatikos. Let me just scroll up a little bit. See, it says pneumatikos. Now, pneumatikos means spiritually. Spiritually, meaning this is a, a, a spiritual parallel. It's a metaphor. It's, it's a it's a picture of something. It's not talking about the literal city where Jesus was crucified. Now, there's some clues here that are very important. And we have to ask, what did Sodom and Egypt represent? Because obviously this is a, a picture being pointed to here. Well, Sodom was sexual immorality, brutality, idolatry. Same for Egypt, but they had a lot of atheism and not trusting in God. Pharaoh was basically an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't trust in God. And there was many times when the Israelites allied themselves with Egypt instead of trusting in the Lord, and they got judged for it. So Egypt and Sodom represent all the things that God hates, all the rebellion and atheism and idolatry and sexual immorality, basically everything that God has condemned. Now, Rome ruled over Jerusalem, which we know from history, that's very clear, they rebelled, then they got their temple destroyed. The Romans are the ones who crucified Jesus. And the Roman church, the Jesuits, are the ones who created the French Revolution. Very important. 
Rome is therefore the spiritual great city that this is referring to. It's not talking about literally where Jesus is. This is a vision of spiritual things. The two witnesses are not literal people. It's the word of God. All of these things that are being mentioned in Revelation 11 are spiritual things. So when it says the great city, which is called Sodom and Egypt spiritually, it's talking about the city that represents it is the maximum of, of rebellion to God. Well, there's no other city that exemplifies that in history other than Rome, which is the seat of the Antichrist power, who calls himself Holy Father, sitting in between the cherubim, which is a counterfeit of the Ark of the Covenant, forgiving sins, being in place of Christ. It is the ultimate rebellion to God. And... Of course, Rome is a mercantile power. We looked at all these other things in the, in the previous points too. So these things apply to Rome as well. You can make them apply to Rome very easily. And they certainly apply much more than Jerusalem because again, this is not talking about Jerusalem for a very simple reason. The two witnesses finished their testimony after 1260 years. If that's the case, it cannot be Jerusalem because Jerusalem was meaningless in 1798. There was nothing there that you could say would happen. Now, the meaning of a woman is also very important. I've talked about this before, but a woman in the Old Testament was always a picture of Israel. It's the body of believers, the bride. That bride is the church. It's, it's the greater group of people, of Jews and Gentiles, as of the New Testament. But it's always been one woman. Now, that woman could either be a prostitute in the Old Testament or a virgin. So prostitution was associated with spiritual faithlessness. In the New Testament, you have the Bride of Christ, who's the virgin, but then you also have this counterfeit, who is the woman riding the beast. And we're going to look at this woman, but a woman is always representative of the church as the body of believers. So if she's a prostitute, certainly the mother of prostitutes, then she is an apostate church as of the New Testament. This is how you interpret things. You use the New Testament to interpret Old Testament imagery, not the other way around. Not Old Testament to interpret the New Testament, which is what dispensationalists do, preterists do. Pretty much everybody who is very deceived on these things will always flip it around and use the Old Testament instead of the New as the guide. But the, Old, the New Testament is very clear. The bride of Christ is the woman, and there's a counterfeit who is Mystery Babylon, who is also a woman. And she's also the mother of other counterfeits because she's the mother of denominationalism. True Christianity has always been non-denominational. So this is very important, but now we want to look at the qualities of this woman. What is this woman like? Does it apply to Jerusalem? Because again, the body of believers represents everybody who believes, not just the city. The, the vision of a woman who is a, who is a prostitute it doesn't apply to Jerusalem. It applies to a body of believers that is not genuine. It's a counterfeit body. This is very important. It's a much broader scope. But we can look at the qualities of this woman and see, does it apply to Jerusalem or does it apply to the Roman Catholic Church like we've seen over and over and over? In Revelation 17 verse 4, it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup, a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. So she's very decadent very wealthy. She's encouraging others to basically enjoy her spiritual 
fruits, fruits of unfaithfulness and rebellion, doing faith her own way, doing spiritual practice her own way, not the way God has commanded. Now, preterists will use Jeremiah 4, verse 30 through 31. They'll say, and you, O desolate one, speaking about Jerusalem, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself, your lovers despise you, they seek your life. So this is now talking about, well, it's actually talking about Israel, really, but it is applicable to Jerusalem. And so they'll they'll use this verse and say, see, this is talking about, the Revelation is talking about Jerusalem. Well, not so fast. This is going back again to the Old Testament to interpret the New rather than using the New Testament to interpret the New Testament. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. So a woman who is a prostitute is an apostate church. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Israel. It is the church, which is the Israel of God. But in the Old Testament, if we look at Jeremiah, this is a picture of apostate Israel, really. Now, Israel had many cities, right? But still, it was very, pretty small. The Catholic system today has over a billion people worldwide. So which one of these is more applicable? I would say that the latter, meaning the Catholic Church, because it has so many more people. And of course, the Catholic Church dresses in red and purple with their bishops and cardinals. It's the most opulent organization in history. It has seduced many into her false way of doing religion denominationalism, in through peace with the Pope going and basically trying to make a worldwide religion. All these things apply to the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, not to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a nobody compared to the Catholic Church in terms of history and seducing people into her way of doing things spiritually. No worldwide impact whatsoever. Now, another one is Revelation 5, the next verse, which is again, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. So again, you have to look and see, did did Jerusalem create earth's abominations by 70 AD? And the answer is no. I've documented all of these things, like the Roman Catholic Church creating Islam and the charismatic movement and the Zionist state of Israel and the faith healing movement and so many, so many things. Hollywood was Jesuit owned and created because the Jesuits owned all the theaters in Europe. And one of their strategies for basically getting people back into the mother church, because the Reformation was a real problem, was to use the movie theaters. Of course, they didn't have movies until later, but the theaters, basically, to create stories and shape culture. All these things are historical, folks, and people do not realize their history, that the mother of Earth's abominations, there's no other organization that qualifies other than the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in the next verse after that, she's drunk with the blood of the saints. This is Revelation 17, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, let's let's put this into historical perspective. Again, who killed more saints, Jerusalem or the Roman Catholic Church? If you said the Roman Catholic Church, you're right. Because Jerusalem, yeah, it killed some prophets, it killed some people, it killed Jesus, obviously. But the Roman Catholic Church has killed more saints than any organization in history. Especially if you consider that she's the mother of abominations, like communism, which killed tens of millions of people. Many of them are Christians, like the Holodomor in Russia and Ukraine, 
that was put on by atheists, atheist Jews. So all of that ties back to the Catholic Church. She's the mother of abominations, Islam, uh, crusades, inquisition, persecution of the reformers, all these things, persecution of Sunday laws early on in the church. All of these things testify against the Catholic Church. She's killed millions and millions of saints, more so than any other organization. And again, by proxy through all of the abominations that she's created. Absolutely. There's no other organization in history that qualifies. But preterists will use Matthew 23, verse 35, and say, where Jesus says, so that you so that you may come, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah to the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And actually the verse before that says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. Now, if you read this literally, it actually doesn't apply to anybody, because nobody has killed every single righteous person on earth. So it's not meant to be read literally. It's taken out of context. The, the, the passage here where Jesus is saying, I'm sending you prophets, the, what was the plan of the gospel? The plan of the gospel was for the Jews to reject Jesus. In order to do that, they also had to reject the prophets, the prophesied of Jesus. Does that make sense? So that was by design, that the Jews would reject Jesus and get judged. That was all predestined, predetermined, so that the gospel could go out to the world. Now, the Jews who would be elect, which is what Paul writes in Romans 11, would get jealous of this, seeing this gospel going out to the nations, and they'll come along too, eventually. But nonetheless, the plan was for the Jews to be basically the ones who rejected the Messiah so that there would be a precedent to give it to the rest of the world. And of course, the Jews had to be judged for that. So that's what this is talking about. It's not talking about Jerusalem being the place where all the righteous people on earth have been slain, which is not true. It doesn't apply actually even to Rome, if that's the case, because Rome is not the only one that's killed. all. But Rome is the one who's drunk with blood of the saints, much more so than Jerusalem, if you know your history. Now, Revelation 17, 18, one last one says that she's the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, you tell me, was Jerusalem in AD 70 a city that had dominion over the kings of the earth? Or was it the other way around? In fact, it was quite the other way around. The Romans controlled Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. Jerusalem was a nothing for the Roman Empire. It did not bow, the Roman emperors and kings did not bow down to Jerusalem. Certainly not in AD 70 and certainly not today either. But you know what city does control the kings of the earth? If you guess the Vatican, you're right. The Vatican, which has been around since 1929, controls the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth bow down to the Vatican. It is part of the unholy triad of Washington, D.C., the Vatican, and um, City of London, where the banking is done. Because this is the unholy triad of the, of the world we live in. But the Vatican is the city that spiritually and politically controls all the kings of the earth from the unseen shadows of secret societies and manipulations and all sorts of other things. So it definitely doesn't apply to Jerusalem that Mystery Babylon is the great city that the kings of the earth bow down to. And certainly, 
to say that the kings of the earth will give their power to this woman, which is what Revelation prophesies, also doesn't fit with Jerusalem. Because, again, that never happened. The kings of the earth never gave their power to Jerusalem. This is a future prophecy of the Christian nationalist system coming back into power with, of course, the Pope as the God King being the head. But preterists will use Revelation uh, 18, 7 through 8, and compare it with Lamentations. Let's see this. And she glorified herself, lived in luxury. So give her a measure of torment and mourning, since her heart says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. That's what Mystery Babylon says. And they say, look, Lamentations 1 verse 1, it says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So this is a judgment on Jerusalem. And of course, they're using the Old Testament to interpret the new. Do you see the pattern? This has nothing to do with what Revelation 18 says of the great city, Babylon, who says, I sit and I am no widow. Yeah, a lot of prideful cities have said that. But how do you know which city this is talking about? Well, again, the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. It doesn't apply to Jerusalem whatsoever. Jerusalem never reigned over the kings of the earth. And certainly the kings of the earth will never give their power to Jerusalem. They'll give it to the Pope, to Rome, because Rome has ruled over the world for the last 2,000 years, practically. So the qualities of Mystery Babylon, wrapping it up now, the the qualities of Mystery Babylon do not match whatsoever Jerusalem. They really don't. Anybody who tells you this is just using the Old Testament to interpret the New, other than, I should say, other rather than using the New Testament to interpret the New Testament. And history as well, which is very important. There's no power in history that fulfills these things like the Catholic Church. There really isn't. And I go into great detail in all my End Time series episodes, especially The Counterfeit Spirit, The Image of the Beast, Mystery of Babylon, Go check those out and edify yourself so that you're not fooled by what's coming. Because if you're preterist and you believe these things, that Jerusalem is the city of seven hills, and we don't have to worry about the Antichrist power, then you are walking right into the greatest deception ever perpetrated on mankind that's coming. Now, in Proverbs 25 verse 2, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the glory of kings to search it out. So I hope that this has motivated you to realize that you have to sniff these things out. You have to do detective work. You have to build a case. God has decreed that the devil would twist his word and lead people astray. This is all part of God's plan, to test the elect. And so confirm your election and do your due diligence. Learn the truth. Don't be so easily fooled by teachings of men. Don't commit to an idea unless you have evidence upon evidence and counter evidence and you've examined the counterclaims and realize that they're not true. That's when you should commit to something, but don't commit to things easily because God has hidden certain things so that we can find them out because it is the glory of God to conceal a thing and is the glory of Kings spiritually to search them out. And of course we are ruling with Christ as of the new Testament, if we're born again, So that has some definite application to today because I do believe that the deception that's coming on the earth will deceive a lot of people. And that's by design to test the elect from the non-elect. 
Because Satan has his elect too, in some sense. He's going to have a counterfeit of election through the mark of the beast. And those who think that everything has happened, we don't have to worry about, you know, the Antichrist power, that yeah, Christian nationalism is a good thing, they will be the first to take the mark and obey this new system when it does arrive. So I hope you're not one of them. Don't settle easily on any belief, but always build a case. Bible prophecy is also very important, not meant for just a small handful of Jews in the Old Testament. It's not meant for a small handful of people at the end of time. God created prophecy for everybody, no matter what time period you were born in, that you could open the Bible, look in his word, and have a sense of where you are. This is so fundamentally important. God would not leave vast swaths of people without any prophetic guidance. And if you believe in preterism or futurism, that's what you believe. You believe that God basically left most of humanity without any prophetic guidance, which is really, really, really crazy. God does not want you to be unprepared. He doesn't want you to be deceived. But a lot of people will ignore sound reasoning. They won't build a case like we built it today. They won't examine context. They won't look at history. They'll just say, oh yeah, see, Jerusalem has seven hills. So there you go. It's Jerusalem. We don't have to worry about it. Well, how do you know? You have to build a case. So, hope today's been enjoyable for you. If someone asks you or tells you that the city of Seven Hills is Jerusalem, point them to this episode and tell them very gently to learn their history.